Thank you very much. So you should all have a handout by now. Um, I'm basically going to take about half an hour to talk uh, at you and then turn over the rest of our time to talking with you, if that's okay. Um, so a few caveats before I launch it in. First, I'm going to record the talk because I have a podcast channel, which is a good opportunity for me to flag up the fact that I have a podcast channel that <laughs> you can find uh, through the Damaris website or through iTunes. It's just Peter S. Williams' podcast channel. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of talks on uh, this and related topics on there from a number of years that you can find. Uh, so that's a good place to go to for further materials. And also on the back of your handout, you'll find I've given you a list of resources for those who want to go further. Because um, for each of these uh, five arguments that I hope to uh, go through, uh, introduce you to perhaps this evening, uh, of course there's an entire literature back and forth on that argument, you could do your PhD on an element of any one of these arguments. So, of course, I'm only going to be able to sort of dip our toe into these uh, waters and give you a sort of introductory overview of a handful of arguments um, that I would see as part of a, a cumulative uh, case uh, for the con- conclusion that there's a god. Um, so this is um, part, but by no means all that could be said on the topic. I shall just try and introduce you to uh, a handful of uh, some of my uh, more favourite uh, arguments. Um, and of course, when you're thinking in, in terms of these sort of big worldview issues, um, you know, this question, you know, is there a God? Um, it's really the, the worldview issue there is what is the nature of of ultimate reality, whatever that is. What is ultimate reality? What's, what's its nature? And that's an inherently comparative exercise. So I'm here going to give a number of positive arguments for a Christian answer to that question. Um, but the the full kind of case and the full kind of your f- full view of that realm will also depend on things like what you make for is there a good positive case for other understandings of the nature of ultimate reality? So is there a good positive case to be made for a metaphysically naturalistic worldview or for a pantheistic worldview? Um, in choosing a worldview, you're, you're not necessarily looking for that viewpoint um, that um, has no mystery uh, left to it, answers all of your questions completely and uh, absolutely proves uh, that it's the right view to take. Um, Rather, what you're doing is is comparing a number of different possible answers to this question and saying which of these answers is the best supported, all things considered, which is the most plausible answer, uh, given the evidence uh, for and against all of the the views possible in the area. So, with those caveats uh, in place, let me launch into a version of the clan cosmological argument. I was pleased to see that you've got uh, Muse's Second Law album uh, playing as we came in. I was going to play some, but it was playing as we came in. But there's a good track on there that, that would sort of introduce this uh, this argument, because there's a, a, a track on there about the second law of thermodynamics, uh, which is um, one of the bits of scientific evidence that people will bring forward uh, to support the view that the past of the universe is finite, um, that it's not an actually infinite past, but it's a finite past because um, we still have usable energy around, and if the past had been actually infinite, 
we would have run out of usable energy uh, by now, and we haven't, so the past must be finite. But uh, that's just a, I just noticed that that album was playing. Anyway, um, so you've got in your sheets the outlines of the arguments, and that's mainly so you can you can sort of get perhaps an intuitive grasp of the of the structure of the the logical validity of these arguments. What you're generally doing in a philosoph- philosophical argument is a number of of claims about reality called premises, which together try and lead you through to believing the conclusion is more plausible than its denial. And the, the main questions to ask of any argument are, does that conclusion follow from the premises? That is, if those premises were true, would that conclusion be the natural thing to believe? And the other question is, is it more plausible than not to hold that those premises are true? Uh, and you can separate out those issues. And of course, in, in the summary form that you have, you haven't got any of the reasons to believe the premises, but at least it gives you the, the structure and a sort of, well, if that were true, would this follow? So my claim would be that all of the arguments are logically valid uh, and that actually the, the crucial questions will concern whether or not you think the premises uh, in them are true. So here's my version of what's called the Kalam cosmological argument. At a recent conference uh, honouring physicist Stephen Hawking's 70th birthday, atheist cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin affirmed that all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. A new scientist editorial on the conference commented, The Big Bang is now part of the furniture of modern cosmology. Many physicists have been fighting a rearguard action against it for decades, largely because of its theological overtones. If you have an instant of creation, don't you need a creator? Cosmologists have tried several different models of the universe that dodge the need for a beginning while still requiring a Big Bang. But recent research has shot them full of holes. It now seems certain that the universe did have a beginning. Without an escape clause, physicists and philosophers must finally answer a problem that's been nagging at them for the best part of 50 years. How do you get a universe, complete with the laws of physics, out of nothing? The physicist Paul Davis observed that one might consider some supernatural force as being responsible for the Big Bang, or one might prefer to regard the Big Bang as an event without a cause. It seems to me that we don't have too much choice, either something outside the physical world or an event without a cause. However, to embrace the idea of a physical event without a cause, I think is to give up on science, basically. For as philosopher Dallas Willard points out, if you allow that the entire physical universe originated from nothing, then there is no reason why physical things and events would not continue to arise from nothing. If the entire universe could originate from nothing, then surely a cup of tea could originate from nothing. Now, a physical event is by nature a contingent event, something that's contingent upon something else. And a contingent event is therefore something that is dependent upon, contingent upon something beyond its own reality. And one obviously can't posit a physical cause of the first physical event. But to deny that the first physical event um, had a non-physical cause, one must either reject the premise that 
all physical events have at least one cause, or else claim that physical events must have physical causes. However, on the one hand, to make an exception to the rule that all physical events have at least one cause when it comes to the first physical event seems ad hoc. It's a move uh, that avoids the conclusion of the argument but has nothing else going for it. On the other hand, the claim that physical events must have physical causes would entail an unacceptable, uh, unacceptable infinite regress. It also begs the question in favour of naturalism. Hence, I think we should recognise the existence of a first physical event <coughs> explained by a non-physical cause. So the argument goes like this. One, there was a first physical event. Two, all physical events have at least one cause outside and independent of themselves. Three, therefore, so this is following from one and two, the first physical event had at least one cause outside and independent of itself. But four, the cause of the first physical event cannot have been a physical cause. Five, then this follows from three and four. Therefore, since causes can only be either physical or non-physical, the first physical event had a non-physical cause outside and independent of itself. As Willard again argues, the dependent character of all physical states, together with the completeness of the series of dependencies, underlying the existence of any given physical state logically implies at least one self-existent and therefore non-physical state of being. Moreover, as J.P. Moreland and William Lane Craig observed, there are two types of causal explanations, uh, those in terms of laws and initial conditions, and personal explanations in terms of agents and their volitions. A first state of the universe cannot have an explanation in terms of laws and initial conditions, since there are no laws or initial conditions before it, and therefore it can be accounted only in terms of a personal explanation. And that is, of course, an important part of what theists mean by God. And it's important to recognise that this argument isn't claiming to prove the existence of God as fully defined. Uh, this argument claims to prove part of what people mean by God as part of a cumulative case. It's like building up the photo fit picture. Um, this is one element of what people mean by God. Now, I'm sure you'll have questions and comebacks, but if you've got pens or anything, I'll drop down notes and we'll go through uh, uh, afterwards. So the second type of cosmological argument I want to look at is called a Leibnizian cosmological argument because it goes back to the German philosopher uh, Leibniz and he builds his argument uh, not from the idea that the universe had a beginning but rather upon what's called the principle of sufficient reason that is uh, stated in premise one here everything that exists has an explanation of its existence either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. Well, secondly, and pretty obviously, uh, the universe exists. Okay? From which it follows that therefore the universe has an explanation of its existence. But four, if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that existence is God. And this will be the crucial premise, I would imagine, to support. From which five, it would follow that therefore the explanation of the universe <coughs> is God. 
Now, since the universe obviously exists, I think non-theists must deny premises one or four, or both, to rationally avoid <laughs> God's existence. Now, many philosophers think that premise one, the principle of sufficient reason, is just self-evident. Um, perhaps an illustration will help. Uh, imagine um, you're out jogging in the forest and you come across a, uh, a translucent ball on the forest floor. This is an illustration uh, from... Uh, <laughs> no, not, not from... Uh, William Lane Craig uses this, but it, uh, it comes from uh, Richard Taylor before him. Yeah. Yeah. Fellow philosopher. <laughs> so imagine you find this translucent ball on the forest floor whilst hiking. You'd naturally wonder how it came to be there. Um, if a fellow hiker said to you, it just exists, inexplicably, don't worry about it, you wouldn't take him seriously. Um, well, suppose we increase the size of that ball so it's as big as the planet. Well, that doesn't remove the need for an explanation. Suppose it were the size of the universe. Same problem, surely. Well, premise four, which is if the universe has an explanation of its existence, then that's God. That's actually synonymous with the standard atheistic claim that if God doesn't exist, then the universe has no explanation of its existence. The only other alternative to theism is to claim that the universe has an explanation in the necessity of its own nature, rather than in something outside of it. But that's a very radical step, and I can't actually think of any contemporary atheist who makes that move. Um, after all, it's coherent to imagine a universe made from, say, a, a wholly different collection of quarks, or whatever fundamental particles you like, uh, than the collection that actually exists. But such a universe would be a different universe. So universes clearly don't exist necessarily. Um, a point you can also raise when people, as we'll get on to later, talk about multiple universes in context of the fine-tuning argument. Um, so suppose I ask you to loan me a certain book, but you say to me, I don't have a copy of that book right now, but I'll ask my friend to lend me his copy, and then I'll lend it to you. Okay. Well, suppose your friend says the same thing to you when you go to him for the loan, and so on, and so on. Well, two things are surely clear. First, if this process of asking to borrow the book goes on ad infinitum, I'll never get the book. <laughs> Secondly, if I get the book, the process that led to me getting it can't have gone on ad infinitum. Somewhere down the line of requests to borrow the book, someone had the book without having to borrow it. Likewise, uh, argues Richard Pertill, consider any contingent reality. The same two principles apply, he says. If the process of everything getting its existence from something else went on to infinity, then the thing in question would never have existence. And if the thing has existence, then the process 
can't have gone on to infinity. There was something that had existence without having to receive it from something else. Now, a necessary being explaining the existence of all physical reality can't itself be a physical reality, by definition. The only remaining possibilities would be an abstract object or an immaterial mind. But abstract objects are causally impotent, therefore the explanation of the physical universe is a necessarily existent transcendent mind. Now, we're getting on to... The idea of mind here, that feeds in quite nicely to argument three, the fine-tuning argument. It's a version of the the design or teleological argument. Um, You may have seen Stephen Hawking and Robert, uh, um, uh, his first name, Mlodnov, Hawking Mlodnov's recent book, The Grand Design, in that Stephen Hawking acknowledges, and he says that the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. If the universe were only slightly different, beings like us could not exist. What are we to make of this fine-tuning? Is it evidence that the universe, after all, was designed? Of course, Hawking thinks not. Um, I think it is. Um, Two ways of looking at this. First of all, well, if it looks like a dog, and it barks like a dog, and it smells like a dog, and so on, there's a good chance that it's a dog. Okay, so um, if it looks like the fine-tuning is the product of design, then in the absence of sufficient counter-evidence, maybe that's a pretty good uh, sort of intuitive reason to think that it is the product of design. But more sophisticatedly, the combination of a highly improbable event with a very special pattern, as Hawking talks about in the fine-tuning, is an example of specified complexity that's best explained by intelligent design. That is, we can mount an argument on the following structure. Premise one. If something exhibits specified complexity, then it's probably the product of design. Two, the fine-tuning of the universe exhibits specified complexity. Three, therefore, it's probably the product of design. Let me illustrate what I mean by specified complexity here. Um... Think of a long string of random Scrabble letters. You know the English game, word game of Scrabble, where you take these little tiles with letters out of the bag and you make words and score points. Well, a long string of random letters, say on Scrabble tiles on the table, is complex. That is, it's unlikely. Uh, It's just one possible string of those letters amongst all of the possible strings of those letters. So it's very unlikely. But it isn't specified. That is, it doesn't conform to any independently uh, known pattern. A short string of letters could be specified. So you had the letters T-H-I-S. This. Um, That would be specified. But it wouldn't be sufficiently complex or unlikely to outstrip the ability of chance to explain that match (coughs) between the event and the pattern. So neither complexity without specificity nor specificity without complexity compels us to infer design. Those things might be the product of design, but you can easily get away without having to invoke design, just from looking at the evidence of those tiles. However, if you saw 
a play by Shakespeare written out in Scrabble letters. You infer design. A play is both specified and sufficiently complex to merit a design inference on the grounds, just inductively, that in all cases where we know the causal origin of specified complexity, experience have shown that intelligent design played a causal role. Likewise with cosmic fine-tuning. Now, of course, this is where people want to start mentioning monkeys and typewriters, so let's do that. Um, Given enough time, (coughs) enough typewriters and enough monkeys, one might get the works of Shakespeare by chance. So why does no one explain Shakespeare's works using the many monkeys hypothesis? You know, you can change the scenario. Imagine you, uh, you're the first astronaut to land on Mars and you stub your space-booted toe against some book, you know, and you don't, you don't immediately go, ah, oh, there must be a lot of space-booted monkeys around with typewriters somewhere. You know, why not? Well, in the absence of independence, independent evidence for the existence of enough time typewriters and monkeys, the design explanation is clearly preferable. Likewise, even granting that if there were, say, multiple universes, then one could obtain the fine-tuning of our universe by chance. In the absence of independent evidence for the existence of multiple universes, the design explanation is clearly preferable. In point of fact, the multiverse hypothesis is empirically disconfirmed by the observation of fine-tuning on a universal scale rather than on a much more probable local scale, which would be all we would need for our existence. Besides, as Robin Collins, a philosopher who's done a lot of writing on this fine-tuning argument, observes, even if a many-universe generator existed, that is, on any physically plausible many-universes hypothesis, you have to have some sort of physical mechanism for the production of all of these differently tuned universes that you're hypothesising. If a many-universes generator existed... It, along with the background laws and principles that it would involve, could be said to be a fine-tuned system. Um, After all, it's a system that produces universes. uh, And it produces different universes rather than spitting out repeatedly the same kind of universe again and again and so on. So that itself would have to be fine-tuned, which just kind of kicks up the design argument a level rather than getting rid of the ruckle in your worldview carpet, as it were. Fourthly, a moral argument. I've put it this way. Premise one, if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. That's a kind of counterfactual way of putting it. You could perhaps more straightforwardly say, if objective moral values exist, then a God must exist. Uh, Either would do. Second premise would be at least one objective moral value exists, from which it would follow that therefore God exists. Now, it's very important not to confuse this argument with the false claim that we must believe in God in order to either know or to do the right thing. Um, Many new atheist authors uh, spend a lot of time mischaracterising the moral argument as the claim that people need to believe in God in order to know that loving your children is a good thing, or that you shouldn't go around murdering, or um, that if you don't believe in God, you'll, you'll be an immoral person, 
or something like this. This is not what the argument is claiming. The argument is stated there clearly. So what does it mean to say that moral values are objective? Well, suppose one person thinks that the sun goes around the earth and another thinks the opposite. In this case, we know that the earth goes around the sun. Those who believe otherwise, however sincerely, are wrong. Moreover, uh, coming to know that the earth goes around the sun is a matter of discovering truth, not inventing it. Well, moral objectivism is the view that says that ethics is about discovering moral truths, truths that exist even if we fail to discern them. According to moral objectivism, there are genuine moral disagreements. And the observation that people sometimes hold different moral opinions just shows that our moral beliefs can be either correct or incorrect according to the moral facts of the matter. That's the the viewpoint. Well, is it a correct viewpoint? Are there any objective moral facts? Well, those who point to the reality of evil as a basis for an argument against God certainly seem to think so. For nothing can be objectively evil if there are no objective values. British philosopher John Cottingham reports that the increasing consensus among philosophers today is that some kind of objectivism of value is correct. And this holds for atheist philosophers as much as it does for theistic ones. Um, For example, the atheist philosopher Peter Cave uh, defends moral objectivism by appealing to his moral intuitions. He says, Whatever sceptical arguments may be brought against our belief that killing the innocent is morally wrong, we are more certain that the killing is morally wrong than that the argument is sound, the argument against objectivism. Torturing an innocent child for sheer fun of it is morally wrong, he says. Well, this properly basic, as philosophers would call it, properly basic intuition that torturing innocent children for fun is wrong isn't undermined at all by the existence of the psychopath who enjoys torturing children for fun. Uh, By the principle of credulity, torturing an innocent child for fun clearly isn't merely something that stops the child functioning functioning normally, which would be an empirical observation, Uh, nor is it merely something we dislike because of our evolutionary history, or merely something our society has decided to discourage. Although it is all of those things, it's not merely any or all of those things. Rather, torturing an innocent child for fun is objectively wrong. So at least one thing is objectively wrong, therefore moral subjectivism, the denial of moral objectivism, is false. Now some moral intuitions are specific in nature, i.e. it's evil to torture small children for fun. And some are general, i.e. it's always right to choose the lesser of two evils if you have a forced choice. Of course, our moral intuitions can be mistaken. But this very admission of fallibility presupposes moral objectivism. For if moral subjectivism were true, no moral claims could be mistaken. If you can't be mistaken because there are no facts of the matter about moral reality, why bother spending any time worrying about 
whether or not you're doing the right, what you ought to do. You know, it, there are no facts to get right or wrong. You can't be mistaken in your moral views if subjectivism is true. As the atheist philosopher Russ Schaefer Landau argues, subjectivism's picture of ethics as a wholly conventional enterprise entails a kind of moral infallibility for individuals or societies. This sort of infallibility is hard to swallow. And I agree. Finally, if moral objectivism were false, it couldn't be true that we objectively ought to consider arguments against moral objectivism. Or that we ought to consider them fairly. Knowing this, we see that to embrace an argument for moral subjectivism would be to take this position, that A, there are no objective moral facts, but that B, we objectively ought to accept subjectivism. And there's something a bit troubling about uh, that uh, viewpoint, surely. So I think the second premise of the moral argument seems pretty secure to me. Turning to the first premise, well, many atheists acknowledge that if God doesn't exist, then objective moral values don't exist. For example, um, the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre wrote this. He said... Uh, that he found it extremely embarrassing that God does not exist, for there disappears with him all possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven, the sort of transcendent reference point of values. Sartre says there can no longer be any good a priori, since there is no infinite and perfect consciousness to think it. Well, an, an objective moral value, when you kind of think about what kind of thing is that in our experience, it's a transcendent ideal that prescribes and obligates our behaviour. But surely an ideal implies a mind. A prescription requires a prescriber, and an obligation is contingent upon a person to whom one is obligated. As H.P. Owen argues, on the one hand, objective moral claims transcend every human person. On the other hand, it's contradictory to, ins to assert that impersonal claims are entitled to the allegiance of our wills. The only solution to this paradox is to suppose that the order of objective moral claims is in fact rooted in the personality of God. And finally, number five, um, a version of the ontological argument. Yeah. <laughs> Pulling out all the stops here. So... Um, it was Anselm who famously de dis dis defined God as the, the greatest conceivable being or the greatest possible being. When you think about it, it seems that as the greatest possible being, God is by definition a necessary being. That is, if God exists, he would be a necessary being. And if something's not a necessary being, then it doesn't really get to qualify as, as God because it wouldn't be the greatest possible being. But a necessary being is, again, by definition, a being that must exist if its existence is possible. If it doesn't exist, in other words, that, that must be because its existence is impossible. Hence, we can argue as follows, uh, and this is a sort of boiled-down version of um, the sort of argument that Alvin Plantinga uh, revitalised in the 1960s, but boiled down to one syllogism. It goes like this. 
Premise one, if it is possible that God exists, then God exists. Premise two, it is possible that God exists. Three, therefore God exists. <laughs> I think it's, it's clearly logically valid, and it actually might surprise you to know that most philosophers of religion, whether they're atheists or agnostics or theists or whatever, agree that this is a logically valid argument. All the debate is over whether the premises are true. And actually, most would concede premise one. The debate really is about whether or not premise two is true and whether there are any independent reasons to believe premise two, aside from the fact that you already believe that there is a God, so of course he must be possible. (laughs) Or saying, well, um, I don't think there is a God, so I guess he must be impossible then. Are there independent reasons for adjudicating that that discussion over premise two? Well, a great... Let me do a bit more defining of things here. A great-making property, something gets talked about in this context, a great-making property. If there's any property that, A, endows its bearer with some measure of objective value, and which, B, admits of a logical maximum. So a sock isn't more valuable than you, because it is smellier than you are. Right. Okay? And however smelly a sock we imagine, it's always possible to imagine a smellier one. So smelliness isn't a great making property. Or size. You know, a whale, a blue whale, is not more valuable than you because it's bigger than you. And however large a thing you imagine, you can always imagine a bigger one. And then the universe, that's always getting bigger. And it can keep getting bigger and so on. So there's no logical maximum there either. On the other hand, think of a quality like power. Power seems to be a great making property, one that has a logical maximum in the quality of being omnipotent. Likewise, necessary being is the maximal instantiation of a great making property. And even if Kant was right when he famously argued that saying something exists doesn't add to our knowledge of its properties, to say that something exists necessarily certainly does add to our knowledge of its properties. Hence, most philosophers agree that if God's existence is even possible, then, as a necessary being, he must exist and exist necessarily. Unlike, say, the Tooth Fairy or the Loch Ness Monster, uh, God couldn't just happen not to exist despite his existence being possible. (coughs) To deny the existence of the Tooth Fairy or Nessie, one needn't claim that its existence is impossible. You could say, well, it could be such a thing, but it it just doesn't exist. However, to deny the existence of God, this argument shows that one must make the metaphysically stronger claim that his existence is impossible. But the claim that God exists, at the very least, clearly isn't on a par with the claim that there are square circles or married bachelors in existence. Those are clearly self-contradictory, impossible things. So... Many atheists do actually acknowledge that the idea of God is a coherent concept. Indeed, atheist Richard Carrier uh, warns that arguments for thinking otherwise are often not valid, since by definition of God or his properties, uh, that, uh, 
since any definition of God or his properties that is illogical or, or self-contradictory can just be revised to be logical. So, in effect, arguments from incoherence aren't really arguments for atheism, but for the reform of theology. Moreover, humans exhibit non-maximal degrees of great-making properties, such as power, knowledge, and goodness. So I've got some power. I also have some knowledge. I also have some goodness and so on. So it's clear that great-making properties can coexist coherently in the same being, at least when they're not at their maximal instantiation. Um, And that goes at least some of the way towards saying that it's perhaps more plausible to think that great-making properties can coexist at their maximal instantiation than that they can't. Finally, by confirming various aspects of the the theistic hypothesis defining God in this way, the other theistic arguments provide independent grounds for thinking that the crucial second premise is more plausible than its denial. So if the, if the Leibnizian cosmological argument works, that proves that there must exist a necessarily existent being, which is just what you'd expect if there is a greatest possible being. Um, if the moral argument works, it proves that there is uh, a morally a good source of, of moral obligation and so on, which is just what you'd expect if the ontological argument is right and so on. Um, I've just finished uh, the other day putting the finishing touches to an introductory philosophy textbook in which I look at ten or so reasons to believe the second premise of the ontological argument um, and again in a cumulative case um, but the, the OA is a nice way of sort of tying up all the other arguments um, and the general drift of the, the case that one can make uh, for God. So, well done. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you have questions and points. If you want to go further, I've got a few little um, booklets with me um, by Bill Craig that covers similar territory at a slightly greater length, and you can take one of these away for free. And uh, you've got the stuff on the back of the sheets as well. Uh, would the thing to do be to go through the arguments in the order that we've we've got them and, and take issues with them one at a time, or do you want to just freeform? Before I think it's we open up the floor, um, just so that we don't yeah. get to the point where we're engrossed in an argument, um, we normally like to wrap up by sort of nine thirty, nine forty-five, something mm. like that. Sure. Um, so. Uh, I will let you manage that, okay. uh, Peter. But again, if we get to that point where we have, to, <coughs> we have to look at the clock and say, I'm sorry, we've got to cut it short. If not, we don't want to engage with the discussion. It's just that probably there's going to be a lot of things coming up and we haven't got time to do with it. I'd say I'd vote for going through them one by one so we, we sort of don't go off top. Otherwise, we might go all over the place and then, yeah. you know, that's sort of... Uh, we all get lost. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Okay, well, let's start with the, the sort of Big Bang cosmological Kalam argument. things like intuition and common sense 
such as what you see in the second point. All physical events have at least one cause outside and depend on them mm. themselves. Um, I think that's a dangerous assumption because we know very, very little about the first you know, few moments of the universe. We know basically nothing about <coughs> what was there, what happened, etc. So to say that you know, all physical events have at least one cause, I don't think works here because we, we can't be sure of that. So I don't think that premise is necessarily correct. Okay. I was going to bring up um, point that kind of related to that. Isn't there, I'm not really sure about this because I'm not a physicist, but um, isn't there like on the quantum level there's, you know, the particles just popping in and out of existence yeah. with no discernible cause? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's quite interesting. Mm. Yeah. Okay, on, on the, on the yeah. <laughs> In a, in, a, in a sense, I, th- I think you're, you're questioning the entire philosophical method um, with, with your question, and also since you can't separate science from, from philosophy, the, the kind of approach to thinking through things that one would have to take <coughs> in order to do science... Um, and I guess you could frame the issue in, in terms of who sort of has a burden of, of proof to, to show whether that principle really is more plausible when it's denial or, or not. Mm-hmm. I think raising the quantum mechanic thing, which a lot of people do raise, mm-hmm. I think it's important to understand that I mean cause here in a, in a very general sense. Yeah. I, I mean that, um, I you know, relative to our experience, physical uh, events don't happen without some sort of context within which they happen that's not necessarily a sufficient cause or sufficient condition of them, them happening, but at least one sort of necessary condition, condition yeah. of that they're happening. So, you know, there are different interpretations of quantum mechanics and so on, but even if quantum mechanical events are, um, in some sense, ran- genuinely random in, in their essence, they're happening against a causal background of the laws of quantum mechanics and the existence of the quantum vacuum, etc., etc., they're not an event happening for no reason at all, with no um, explanatory context. Mm. Um, I think I don't think we can assign reasons to why there are fluctuations. I mean, we could just not have them. There's no obvious reason why they should exist. But you don't have an ex- something coming from nothing. Yeah. You still have yeah. a quantum vacuum, which is a, which is it's often presented as nothing, but that's not true. It's yeah. not nothing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Something. Well, interesting to say that because um, what we know now, within the last ten years, actually, of studying the universe and cosmology, is that um, we're about certain to about one percent that the universe has zero energy in total. So. The last ten years, we've been able to, you know, send out probes that determine the geometry of the universe. And we, what we know is that energy curves the universe. So if the universe was in general curved, it would have, say, a positive energy. But we found out that to within one percent, the universe is flat, which means that the total energy of the universe is actually zero. Yeah, this is this is the move that someone like Peter Atkins, for example. Makes if you watch the, Peter Atkins's <coughs> recent debate with William Lane Craig, which is his central response to the plan cosmological argument, and I think it's a little bit like arguing if I've got one bank account that's got five pounds in it and another bank account that's five pounds in debt, since the sum of those two bank accounts is zero, 
therefore I don't have any money or bank accounts. Well, just because the sum of... of well, of, if you don't <laughs> have any money, that <laughs> Just because the, t the sum of two quantities is, is zero... If, Doesn't if, mean there's if nothing zero there. Energy, then there's nothing in our physical laws that prohibits it. it's yeah. spontaneously coming out yeah. of existence. But but what I'm saying is 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 saying that that something is described as having zero net energy is not the same thing as saying there is nothing. You can't, you, you can't say there is nothing, and the nothing is, des is describable as having zero net energy. Mm. That's not a nothing, that's a something with zero net energy. I, I don't agree with that, because you, you raise the bank accounts thing, and you know, if you have £5 in one bank account, mm. and you have £5 in debt somewhere else, yeah. you don't have any money. But I can, go to the, I, can, I can still go to my bank account, take out the £5, yes. and go to a shop and buy something with it. Yes, but um, then you're in debt. Yeah, I'm in debt, but I've still got five pounds that I can use to, to buy stuff with. Yes, <laughs> even though the, even though the two sum to sum to zero, yeah. I've still there is there's there's still two things that sum to zero. I've still got two bank accounts. Um, you know, I, I think it's a similar move to to say, well, because the net energy is nearish to zero, therefore there's what you're really saying is. You don't have to. There's no need to explain the the arisal of something from nothing because actually all that has arisen from the nothing is nothing. So what are we? You know, we, you're saying we aren't anything. Well, what I'm trying to say is there's no law against something coming from nothing if you know the energy is conserved. So if you have zero total energy, then there's nothing that says tomorrow you can disappear. Say you have no energy, you can disappear. Right. Oh, okay. So you. Time in physics, for example, photons, which are the carriers of light, mm. have no conservation law. So light can just disappear into nothing. Yeah. yeah. And then it can reappear somewhere else spontaneously. There's not nothing that prohibits that. If that's true, why bother with the quantum vacuum? Sorry. Yeah. If that's true, why yeah. bother with the quantum vacuum? Why not just say particles pop into existence and do nothing? They do. No, they, they, they come out of the quantum vacuum. Yeah, but they, they come out spontaneously without any necessary cause. Yeah. But that's the... predict when they will... That's the when. That's the, 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 the coming out, not the, not the... Yeah. It's... I, I was going to make the same, the same point. <laughs> yeah. um, so, yes, your... Well, and your adjudication of, of that issue will perhaps be key to, to that argument. Um... Are there any other points of it that that people would like to stick a fork into, or is that the crucial? There's another issue of point two, mm -hmm. um, and I feel it's incorrect because there are events that have absolutely no cause. Um, as a philosopher, I'm sure you're aware of Schrödinger's cat, which is. Mm -hmm. uh, which is, was a, a physical way of demonstrating that something can be completely <coughs> random and have no cause whatsoever. When a particular particle emits a beta particle, no one will ever be able to calculate, no one will ever know it has no cause whatsoever. So I believe that it is possible for physical events to happen that don't have a cause. Okay. 
Well, I think we've already gone through. I mean, Schrodinger, Schrodinger first proposed that thought, and it was it was a it was a counterexample to the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, of course. But because um, he said this is so this is a, 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 a reduction in ab, ab, absurdium of mm. of the results of that interpretation of quantum mechanics. Um, but I think yeah, we're, we're just going to go over the same ground of the issue of whether or not the quantum vacuum is a nothing, and saying okay, when the particle appears, might not be. It's, there's no sufficient um, physical explanation for that, but we're not talking about a a, a complete lack of a causal um, context for something happening. That's the, the we, distinction. We really expect it to go down that in the future we probably will know why they come out in the same way that obviously before electricity was understood at all, mm. thought it just came from nowhere. Well, that's possible uh, as well, of course. There are, yeah, as I right. say, there, there are, I, I believe, ten or so different interpretations of quantum mechanics that that fit the empirical data, but are mathematically different. Um, so it may, just, it may just be that we haven't got sufficient empirical data to tell which of the interpretations is correct yet. Um, or you may have philosophical reasons for thinking, preferring one explanation over, over another. But, um, yeah. Can I just clarify, Simon? So um, I should know more of this than I can hmm. demonstrate. But a lot of things, so if you had uh, emission from an excited uh, nucleus, for example, is random in the, it, it's random in the sense that you can't often tell when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen. <clears throat> but it's got a cause because you've got something that's unstable and the energy has, the energy levels have to change. But yeah, cause, the cause the energy can release yeah. itself, not the state of its instability. So it's sitting there quite happily in an unstable state, not releasing anything. For an unmeasured period of time, that could be, in the case of some mm. nuclear radioactive things, hundreds and hundreds of mm. years, what most people will consider mm. very long time. And then all of a sudden, it does release. Yeah. Why is that? I mean, yeah. but the, in the future, we probably will yeah. know why well, Maybe. The question is going to be, would, could, you get, could you get the release without the thing that it's released from? Yeah, exactly. If you didn't <laughs> put the energy in, then it certainly wouldn't happen. Could you get the release without the thing that's released from? So if you say that there's, you're saying you're talking about an energy release from something, and you're trying to use that as a counterexample to the idea that that every physical event must have some kind of causal context, some kind of cause independent of it. I don't see why something from nothing. Regardless of whether you have the radioactive material in the first place, still makes it something which appears to, at least in a current state of knowledge, have no cause. Okay, I, I think we're we're, I agree we're probably met in, in, an impasse at that at that stage. <laughs> just, I'm just thinking of a the crude example. Imagine you have a bow and arrow that is in tension, and for some reason it's staying like that for hundreds of years, and for absolutely no discernible reason, the arrow gets fired. Um, okay, so there's some sort of unpredictability. Maybe it is inherently random, or maybe we just don't know yet, or something like that. However, if there wasn't any tension. If the bow wasn't in tension, it certainly would never be fired, if you know what I mean. So the, there's still a cause, which is the, the tension, the energy is already there, ready to go. It's just when it goes is a bit unpredictable. But that makes I sense. wasn't questioning how the energy was put in the first place. I was questioning what made it caught fire, and we don't know. The energy is there. I mean, it's obviously there's a negative elsewhere. In order to be a positive there, as Robin was saying, it's at zero. It wasn't something I knew, but... Fair enough, but why, why did it fire then, specifically? But would, you, but would you agree in saying that possibly in the future, with advanced knowledge, we might know that? 
In the same way that several hundred years ago we didn't know why electricity flowed mm -hmm. along the wire, and we now do, I think it's possible to have a better idea in the future. Yeah, but in the future we might also find out that there is actually no cause, and, and that some physical things just don't have a cause, and that will also undermine point two. But then you, you would need criteria to prove that there is no cause. So it's sort of open-ended on both sides. What will convince you that there is a cause? Well, um, right, right now we're kind of assuming there's no cause. We, I mean, it's the ultimate randomness, isn't it? The universe, what we know as randomness, that's kind of the best example of it. So right now we're kind of assuming that we can't predict it, and therefore it doesn't have to be a cause for it. But still macroscopically, because you're talking about something teeny tiny, quantum level, that we can't actively observe. Yeah. Macroscopically, it's still very predictable. Well, it's probabilistic. <laughs> it's predictable one way rather than the other, and I think this is what uh, people are getting at, is that um, if you if you have an excited nucleus um, that at some point might become de-excited and trapped in photons out, um, you don't know when, you don't know what will cause that to snap, the bow and arrow to fire, to use Peter's analogy, but if you had a stable nucleus, we wouldn't expect it to, um, we wouldn't expect it to send discharge photons. And I think this is what, uh, what Chris is getting at as well. That yes, there's a randomness, and yes, okay, so we don't know why at that particular moment something discharged, but there is still a structure of the macroscopic world, there is still an order in which things happen and don't happen. Mm. Yep. So you still have something coming from something. I think you're going back to the mm. causal context thing, it's discharging because it's unstable. So at some point it's got to... I don't think it's fair to talk about the macroscopic world because I mean that the physical laws underlying the macroscopic world are operating on that random um, context. And what we view as the mac macroscopic world, which is things that are about our size and our you know, velocity and all that stuff, is what we can conceive. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everything in the universe necessarily behaves like what we can imagine or what our intuition tells like. No, agreed, because that's one of the um, founding points of quantum mechanics, that there is around yeah. this. But there is... So just because we, we see order and we see things moving this way and we see that everything has a cause doesn't necessarily mean that on every level every physical event has a cause. But you would agree. still come round in this case to an excited nucleus. You would know you nobody's given a counterexample of a, oh you know well there's been non-excited nuclei that are suddenly emitting things randomly. There's well, always been a reason. For example, neutrons decay spontaneously. They just decay. They're unstable. They exist and they just decay. But their half-life so is amazingly long. It's about the life of the yes, universe. but they still decay. But it still happens. <laughs> they do. <laughs> but it's if we're. I guess, and I'm going to probably shut up in a second, <laughs> but we're still following sort of defined events and say nobody has taken, nobody would take um, argon, for example, and say, oh, it's good, you know, we've seen it decay and spontaneously <coughs> photons, that's just not a phenomenon that's been seen. So even though, even though there is a randomness, and I can well accept that, the randomness still happens within some bounds. Um, you'd say stable is carbon, and that does. I think, by the way, I think fundamentally every element is unstable. It's just that their half-lives are, you know, much, 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 much bigger than the 
life of the universe. Like, it's suspected that the proton itself is unstable with a half-life of something like tens of power of a hundred and something years. Now, obviously that's nothing that we'll ever observe, probably, but it does, you know, it does imply that not necessarily what we think is true is Okay. Another point, just one to clarify one thing earlier, is that the quantum vacuum is not a bunch of things we can't detect just floating there. It's absolute nothing interjected with random particles appearing and then disappearing. Always instantaneously. That's not what I've read. But... Well, you have a particle at the same time, according to this being zero, the equivalent antiparticle or the opposite will appear somewhere else or even very net close to it. They'll appear <coughs> and disappear instantaneously. And that's been observed in cloud chambers. But it, it appears and it goes. Quantum vacuum so is a sea of end fluctuating it. energy. It's it's actually it's fluctuating energy. It, it's overall it's nothing. Yeah, but that the antiparticle could appear. Overall, the energy of the system sums to nothing. Yeah, I think we I think we could agree that we're going round in in in, uh, in circles here. So we're probably not going to make any any further progress on premise two of the clan cosmological argument. So let us move on to the Leibnizian cosmological argument and see where people want to prod this one. So something I could throw out here, being a little bit cheeky, mm -hmm. I guess, is I think for different people there will be a different level of what constitutes a valid explanation. Mm -hmm. um, and some people are more inquisitive than others, and it's quite a, uh, little Benjamin is quite a good example here. You know, James, why did you shave your beard off? Because I wanted to. You know, why did you want to? Well, because I was bored with it. Oh, fine. Somebody else might have gone, why are we bored with it? And so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. But there comes a point where, you know, different people, I think, are satisfied with sort of different explanations mm -hmm. and what we mean by explanation. Yeah. So I think someone else come out and say, if everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, then what's the explanation for the existence of God? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that that's why the first premise is... is, is yeah. crucial to, to understand, yeah. Because it's it's saying either in the necessity of its own nature or an external cause. So with God, it would be because of the necessity of his own nature. Then why not just say, well, the universe is... It, yeah, and, 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 and therefore it's interesting to note that, that no atheist philosopher takes that route of saying that the physical universe exists by necessity of its own nature. Um, uh, when I get some of the reasons uh, in the talk, but... It, it just seems that the, the our sort of concepts of physical reality are by nature contingent rather than necessary. Um, and that I mean we gave the, the we had the example in, in the in the speech about the if a different set of fundamental particles existed rather than the set that do exist, that would be a different universe um, <clears throat> is that uh, impossible is, is, is every fundamental particle that exists necessarily existent uh, when you think about um, 
multiple universe um, hypotheses, you tend to say, well, let's explain away the fine-tuning by saying maybe there are a whole bunch of other universes that are all different. Okay, and that seems to be a perfectly coherent thing to suggest. But if you want to make this objection to the Leibnizian cosmological argument, then you can't make that objection to the fine-tuning argument, because it would be incoherent to suggest that there could be a different... Um, that the universe could be different than it, than it is, um, or that maybe this one wouldn't have been produced, this, this, this system producing all sorts of different universes, and it happens to have produced this one, and it happens to have produced lots of other ones, and by chance you get the one that we do have, and so on, but by, you're saying by chance these things can be different, and it could be different than it is, and, um, rather than it's necessary that everything is physical is the way that it is. Um. Um, third, I was going to ask it. I'm just going to ask fourth. Hasn't it been existing mm-hmm. developed God? Yeah. Um, why that explanation, not Zeus, additionally, or yeah. the Buddha? Yeah. The reason yeah. why I dropped a spoon is God. So it's not a natural thing. God is not an existence anyway. It's just a reason. We're just kind of calling a cause of the existence of God. Yeah, go you can call it anything. Call it a two-fairy then that's point of the argument supports is that it's a necessarily mm. existent reality, that it's not physical so it's non-physical, and that it is uh, a mind rather than an abstract object. Uh, that's all the argument claims to support. Uh, you, you can call that Bob or the Tooth Fairy if you like. So but, but, why it has to be a mind at all? I mean, anything that can cause something could cause a universe. It doesn't have to well, think, it doesn't have to choose, yeah. it doesn't have to make sure that humans exist in it. I mean... So the argument for it being a mind was a, 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 an argument from elim- elimination saying since the explanation of all physical reality can't be physical, it's got to be non-physical. And then the question is what, what types of non-physical things are there and can we, by a process of elimination, set down to mind? And the basic idea is that um, as far as philosophers are concerned, if something's non-physical, then it's either an abstract object of the kind that Plato thought about when, in his theory of the forms, he, he thought, for example, that numbers, as m- many mathematicians still do, think numbers are real. So the number seven exists. Okay? It's not a physical thing. You can't bump your toe into the number seven. Um, but abstract objects, by their very nature, are not causally uh, effective things. If the number seven exists, it doesn't cause anything. Um, it doesn't uh, interact with uh, anything. It doesn't. Um, it's not a, a, an efficient explanation of stuff. Or another alternative would be a mind. Now, minds do seem to cause things. Um, So it's more plausible to say that this non-physical reality that explains physical reality is mind-like than 
abstract object like that's the mind by nature is physical it's something that exists in the physical world you know it's interaction in our brain essentially so why is that non-physical well, in a sense, the, the Leibnizian cosmological argument here is an argument against that mind-body reductionism, um, because you've made the assumption, a sort of naturalistic assumption there, in order to rebut the argument by saying, but mind, by definition, is a physical thing. Um, well, you know, there are plenty of dualist philosophers, but actually, if this argument is right, then mind, by nature, can't be a physical thing because there is an explanation of the physical realm. It's non-physical and it's not an abstract object. So, what else are you going to say it is apart from mind? Even if we were dualists, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Every thought, every emotion, etc., that comes from the mind exists in the physical world. So, I don't understand how you can define it as being non-physical. I mean, it's a definition thing, I think, more. But mm. I'm not sure how you can assume that it's somehow outside of the physical... Well, I don't think we really need to adjudicate that issue. We, we don't need to assume that it is or that it isn't. What we need for the argument to work is the assumption that it could be. That mind could be a non-physical thing. That non-physical things could be a mind rather than an abstract object. Um, whether or not ours are physical or non-physical, is neither here nor there, as long as it's the, the premise that's required for the argument is that it is possible that the mind be non-physical. I don't know why it was inserting for an explanation jump straight to a non-physical mind, because that could quite easily have been you know, a previous universe that collapsed and re Recreated, in which case I know you'll jump to what created the game. That uh, no, no, I'm, I, I won't actually. I won't actually because the the cosmo, the clan the cosmological argument is the argument that's concerned with regresses of causation and beginnings. The Leibnizian cosmological argument doesn't care two hoots whether or not the physical universe had a beginning or not. That's a completely beside the point issue for the Leibnizian argument. The, the Leibnizian is is more about the contingency of certain kinds of reality implying the need for a necessary cause so explanation, an explanation of their existence. It's not like an argument how it was, became... Yeah, it's not about coming into existence and all that. It's like, why is there a thing... Why do physical things exist here and now? So given that it does, yeah. it's trying to explain why it does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, was gonna, I was just thinking, um, what if it... Um, isn't there an impersonal, impersonal yet concrete thing that fits? What, what about forces? Do they, do they count as non-physical? I'm not really sure. They're mediated by physical particles, so there must be. Oh, okay, gotcha. Right, well then, <coughs> I retract my objection. <laughs> what I got here in the first arguability, uh, people are saying it's physical, non-physical. Uh, like there is some discussion about particles, nucleus, and all those stuff. Mm. What I feel that the scientists or whatever, the people, we based everything on assumptions. Even the radioactive decay constant, it's an assumption. It's not perfect. So if you say life, it's not a perfect. It's not you are not giving a straight answer for that. So everything we are based on assumptions. So we, we don't, we are unable to capture the essence of universe existence. And we are still finding out different arguments. There are like a couple of arguments about Big Bang Theory. So. Yeah, so this argument, like, non-physical, it supports that. Mm. But we're jumping to the conclusion, which is what is 
given here, like you're taking an argument and you're jumping maybe non-physical. It can be true, but it's not too much for people to take it, you know? Okay. So you would perhaps say that the, the most the argument supports is that it can be rational to think that the explanation is non-physical, but it can be rational to think otherwise. Um, but at least the argument shows that, it, that believing there's a non-physical explanation is a rational thing to think. Maybe it's, it's a question of, as I say with the argument, degrees of plausibility about the, particularly the crucial premises. And I don't need to at all make the claim that you know, the, the truth of all of the premises in these arguments is just obvious and that anyone who denies that they're true is, you know, stupid or evil or just not paying attention or anything like this. Not at all. It is a matter of, and everyone, as you say, might make different sort of plausibility judgments on this, but for all of them you're asking, is affirming this premise as being true more plausible than denying it? So that the standard of, of evidence here, as it were, is um, not even beyond reasonable doubt. It's on the balance of probability. Um, and if you have an argument where all of the premises on the balance of probability, you think, are more plausible than their denials, and there's a conclusion that follows from them, then it's an argument that, that gives some weight to that conclusion. But as I say, ultimately you're going to be balancing you know, a number of arguments for one viewpoint against, perhaps, we haven't got, you know, time to go into the arguments for and against pantheism, or the arguments for and against naturalism, or or so on. That's why I I gave those caveats at the beginning, that really it's it's only a sort of dipping your foot into the the conversation um, about these issues, you know, I, I, I... I think it would be highly implausible of me to come tonight and say, well, here are the five arguments, you know, knock down QED, this is going to prove it, I must, you know, uh, convince all of you by the end of the evening that there's a God, otherwise you're all stupid. You know, that's not my, my approach. Would you at least agree that this is not really an argument for theism, but more for theism? I mean, there's nothing in here that says the God has to... Uh, right, yes, yeah, sure. Yes, sure. There's nothing here... Um, no, no I, I think all of these arguments are compatible with deism, actually, that, I'm, that I've given on the list here. That's the idea that there's a God who created the universe but doesn't interact with it. Um, some deists um, might have been of the view that God kind of creates the universe and then kind of leaves it alone and has nothing to do with it. The, the, the Leibniz in cosmological argument, as I was saying, is more of an argument for, for, for there being a God who sustains the universe in existence moment by moment um, so there's perhaps a, a sort of extreme kind of deism that that's incompatible with but otherwise certainly you know, none of these are You know, I read a book, my last published book was called um, Understanding Jesus Five Ways to Spiritual Enlightenment and looked at five arguments from the historical evidence for the Christian understanding of Jesus and it's, it's that kind of stuff that I would punt to um, for um, rounding out a case for, for theism and indeed Christian theism rather than belief in some kind of creator with certain qualities that we can prove, you know, to some degree. That's, yeah, absolutely. Shall we look at fine-tuning? Yes. So, Peter, you said that, um, you know, we, 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 we tend not to see the wars of the probability 
in terms of, or it must be random. We tend to prefer a creator for, say, Shakespeare or something like that. Yeah. But surely part of that is based on the fact that we, we have evidence for the fact that William Shakespeare was a person that existed yeah. in this place. Yeah, that's why I introduced the supposing you were a, a spaceman and you were the first person to arrive on Mars example. Um, um, you wouldn't know who or when, or it certainly wasn't a human being. Um, but you would still think an intelligence of some kind uh, produced yeah. that. But would you still think that if you didn't know English, if you couldn't read letters, if you just came and ah. saw a bunch of letters that yeah. didn't mean anything to you, would you still think yeah. that? Perhaps not. So this would be an issue where you, you didn't recognise that the, the complicated event or structure that you saw fitted an independent pattern. Um, it's like cryptography. Um, cryptographers, of course, hope to not be noticed. If you, if you at least notice that it is a, a code, <coughs> you then try and crack it. Um, so I think John Lennox gives this, the example of if you, um, say you're going in a, a cave and there are some scratch, scratch marks on the wall... Um, one person looking at those scratch marks might well think, oh, you know, some sort of animal's done its claws on the wall or, I don't know, who, you know, who cares? That's not very interesting. And it's only just a couple of scratch marks. And someone else might say, oh, look, intelligence. And this is because, you know, only one of those two people knows Chinese and recognises that that's the Chinese word for such and such. Um, so it is, um, you have to recognise that the event is sufficiently complex and specified and when you recognise both of those things then the most plausible explanation that we punt to is intelligence but of course you can fail to notice that something's complex or that it's specified or that it's both <laughs> I can uh, watch any sci-fi movie Mm. They're kind of looking for alien life or messages from outer space like contacts and uh, Prometheus and mm. so on. Mm. They all jump to design all the time, and that's very normal. And mm. they're not particularly theists or anything. Not no, no. The, the, the that's right. To, to that. It's not, I don't think it's that strange to conclude that. No, no. The, the, the first premise here, and indeed I published a paper a couple, number of years ago on... Um, because this is, is something that's often talked about in the context of, of the controversial intelligent design theory and so on, but I published a paper showing that um, atheist philosophers and theists who are against intelligent design theory nonetheless recognise that this specified complexity criterion is a sensible and scientific criterion of design detection. It's just that those people tend to think that ID people misapply the criteria to thing to data that doesn't actually pass through the criteria. That's their issue with it. Um, but you know, Richard Dawkins thinks that specified complexity is a fine design detection criteria. Obviously, you know, that's that's fine. He just thinks the question is, can is there anything in nature that actually passes through the criteria or not? Um, so, um, in in that sense, that the, you know there are atheists and so on who will support that, that premise. I don't think it's particularly controversial. It's used every day in lots of particular sciences. Um, the controversial thing is when you apply it in the context of making a design argument, um, which I think focuses att attention on, on premise two, 
which seems to be where the debate is because people will have this whole debate over is multiple universes a better explanation of the apparent fine-tuning of the universe it's a way of of saying it's not complex um it's not unlikely it um Yes. Um, <coughs> without opening up a whole can of worms on the on particular <laughs> evolution issue and different people's opinion of that, um, the criteria I used was um, in the absence of sufficient counter evidence. It was an appeal to the principle of Richard Swinburne's principle of credulity that you ought to take things to be the way they seem to be unless you've got sufficient evidence that you're wrong and that that's the sensible way to go about things because otherwise you'd end up in a, in a very deep scepticism about most things because you'd never believe anything until you had sufficient evidence that you weren't wrong but about it and, and so on yeah so so yeah so what i'm doing is, is agreeing with you and saying so if you said, oh, look at the mammalian eye, that sure looks designed, so it probably was. What you're saying is, ah, but in that case, in biological instances, we've got sufficient evidence to say, but there's overriding counter-evidence. Yes. Okay, so without having to get into what you think about evolution or not, we can say, granting evolution, yes, that's fine, that would undermine that argument. The question would be, how's that relevant to the fine-tuning argument what, the fine-tuning argument from the principle of credulity you'd need something that says we've got sufficient counter-evidence to undermine that particular um, well, I think inference. this evidence applies to the universe itself because I mean, we are part of the universe so we've seen things that look designed that we've kind of discovered that you know, can arise from simpler more you know, unordered forms yeah, yeah. so that kind of gives evidence that other things in, in the universe might be the exact same thing. But might be, yes. But the what you're really doing then is, is denying the principle of credulity. Um, you're saying um, there is this principle, you should take evidence, things to be the way they seem to be, unless you've got sufficient counter-evidence. Then you're saying, because in some cases we have sufficient counter-evidence to override the inference to things being the way they do seem to be, i.e. designed. Therefore, um, we should not apply the principle of credulity to anything. That's what I'm saying is, they're not separate things. We're still in the universe, we're still looking at the universe just at a slightly smaller scale. We're still talking about the same thing, aren't we, in the sense? Mm -hmm. They're not different things. Well, um, you're talking. You're talking about things within evolutionary history. I'm talking about the fine-tuning of the of the the cosmos from the Big Bang forward. So, and then I want to, in one of the arguments, apply this principle of credulity to that to say, well, it looks designed, and even atheists and agnostics say it looks designed. So, and then say, in the ab- in the absence of sufficient counter evidence. For this, in this instance, we should believe that it is designed. So the question would be, what's the f- sufficient counter-evidence to the idea that the fine-tuning is the product of, of design? Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Well, um, 
I kind of, I definitely agree a bit with the way that this design is formed, this um, argument. Mm. I do think that um, uh, that's because I'm human, and obviously our, our brains are simply not designed or capable of comprehending the huge amounts of numbers that this happens. Um, for example, to use your Scrabble argument, if you had, you know, if you laid out some letters and stuff, if you laid out hundreds of millions upon millions upon millions and continued going, mm. it would be incredibly unlikely that this work of Shakespeare wouldn't be in there somewhere. You would expect to find that. Mm. And the more you increase it, the same way if yep. you're thinking of a friend, like you just, you just think of a, a previous happy memory or something, and then they, the phone calls and it's them, you, you go, wow, that connection is incredible. Mm. When in fact, if that didn't happen, it would be extremely rare. Mm. That's going to happen at some point, just because of the large numbers. Isn't it? Mm. Things that are one in several hundred million to one happen yeah. all the time. <laughs> Yeah. Positively. Um, yeah. So I think that me, us seeing this, oh, this looks like a design, is what we perceive to be a design. If you showed a, a lesser mind, I don't know, you know, a, a monkey or something, much simpler design, it would go, oh, it's likely that I picked up two sticks the same size as ever. We'd go, we, we know enough to know that that's random, but they would see pattern in it. And I, can, I also do suffer from this. Mm. I mean, lots of times I'll, I'll have several bad days in a row and connect the fact that I ate the same thing or something, you know, which is completely unrelated. Mm. Like superstition of seeing birds, blackbirds, and assuming that that's why yeah. I had a bad day. And I think that this result, while I can see why it's valid, mm. it's very easy to believe, I think it's a result of us being incapable of comprehending the enormous amount of mm. time and mm. stuff that's in, in question. Mm. I think you undermine science by doing that. So we should, do, by the same rule, we should disbelieve most scientific theories, because the probability that this um, observation, or the by making scientific predictions with that theory, the, the probability that this result, uh, mm. the observation matches that mm -hmm. predicted prediction, is incredibly unlikely. But by your definition, by your argument, I should disbelieve it because I'm human. I want to believe that, and so I should start stop mm. believing in science. No, I, I agree with you. It should, and <coughs> that is why. Um, scientific theories are not accepted until they've been rigorously tested multiple times. And I mean, that then but could still be thought of. By your argument. That, time, mm. that could then mm. also be thought of as theory, which yeah. then comes back yeah. to is it more likely yeah. that it is or isn't? And but of course. In, in this case, we're not looking enough into yeah. the future to think that it is more likely that it is or isn't. Yeah. It's just uh, of course, in, in your example of sort of mistaking. Uh, coincidences as significant because they match a pattern and we, we underestimate the likelihood of them. We think it's unlikely, but it's not, given the law of large numbers. Mm -hmm. That's because there's a context of, of events happening around. Mm -hmm. And you can actually work out what the, uh, what the chances of things are, at least in, in some contexts. You can work out a probability bound for the, the number of possible events that the universe could have computed since its beginning, uh, and so on. Um, you know, uh, one in ten to the 120 or 150 or whatever. Uh, and um, you've, 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 you've got that context that you can then judge things against, which does allow us to do things like, say, um, or that, 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 you know, do things in cryptography or um, do forensic science and say, you know, he was, he, you know, it was not natural causes, <laughs> rather than, oh, well, you know, just loads of stuff hap happens, it's probably, you know, perfectly likely that he ended up with a knife in his back in such and such a situation and so on. But when you're looking at the fine-tuning of the, of the universe... What is the um, the context of lots of things happening that you're suddenly as assuming? Well, and what you're really pointing to is saying is assuming a multiverse 
answer you're saying there? Not, not quite. Uh, I think it's, it's the lack of uh, my ability as much as anyone else's to comprehend the size of the universe. You can look at the world and go, it's perfectly designed for people. If it was one degree hotter or colder, it wouldn't fit, etc., etc. Everything about it is perfect. But given the number of planets, which I simply can't comprehend, the number of star systems, all of which have... Mm so many planets in, mm. it was almost impossible that that wouldn't happen. Yeah. But, but again, here, the, the numbers... The numbers... <laughs> ...is likely to have somewhere in us or us in it, because it's so yeah. huge. But that, that's, that would be a local fine-tuning argument rather than a cosmic fine-tuning argument. The, the numbers that are calculated by cosmologists for the, for the cosmic fine-tuning argument are mind-bogglingly mm-hmm. huge. Yeah. But to say... Um, but maybe I'm just... Um, underestimating how likely actually that actually actually they're not very unlikely as they look actually they're they're quite perhaps likely and therefore i'm I'm reading too much into it you'd need some kind of background of even more stuff than our universe happening that's why i say what you're what you're really assuming in the background of the objection is is a multiverse saying there are there are so many other universes and things happening that actually you know uh, that, that one of these universes should hit the specification for, for life-bearing properties by chance alone is not all that surprising and unlikely, and so on. Um, it's possible, I'm not, not going to yeah. maybe I wasn't. So, the, um, the, is it a constant or a commonwealth of um, entropy, given at the Big Bang, mm. something one out of minus ten, I memorise this, one out of ten, oh, sorry, one out of minus ten to the power of, 10 to the power of 123, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, that's Roger Penrose's calculation, yeah. Yeah, that's not necessarily like a correct calculation of entropy for the beginning of the universe, because we can't possibly do something like that for something we know so is about. So I think that's just sort of someone trying to make... Maybe it's back of the envelope. So, you know, think about it, but I don't think that's necessarily something you can say, oh, well, that number is so large that it's inconceivable, well, that number may be wrong. And uh, can I also say that, are you talking mm. about the whole, like, universal constants being, you know, so mm. precisely mm. tuned that if they were any different, the universe wouldn't have formed, etc. Is that what you mean by fine tuning? Because mm. I thought it was a whole, you know, why do we exist sort of thing. But... Oh, no, well, yeah, it's fine. Why is there... Um, that's why it's sometimes... That's why I don't talk about it as the anthropic... Um, argument as it's sometimes talked about because that that Im- that implies you know, anthropos Greek people that it's it's fine tuned for people but e- even at the level of why is there stably existing matter upon which you could have chemistry happen mm-hmm. um, well, you know why why is there carbon so there can be any kind of life you know at all that's the kind of level of fine tuning that, that I think in itself is significant if there was going to be constants in the universe then they could be anything right mm-hmm. and what we're saying is that it's so unlikely that they are this mm-hmm. yeah but that's like saying it's the what's it called texas sharpshooter fallacy, <laughs> I think, isn't it? I mean, texas gamblers fallacy no that the, the guy who like shoots at a wall mm-hmm. and then draws a circle around it and says look i'm a sharpshooter so it's like saying Say a, a million people play the lottery, mm-hmm. and it's one in a million <coughs> chance that that guy is going to win the lottery. But if that guy has already won the lottery, you yeah. say, "Wow, you're one in yeah. a million. Yeah. Well, someone's going to win it. So yeah. the probability of someone winning it is one. So the probability of there being such constants is one. And 
because we're here now, that's One. the number. So it's not unlikely, it's just, it's as unlikely as any number, but it's happened and now we're here. Do, do you get what I mean? Yeah, yeah, but it's... <laughs> because it's not a lottery in which someone was going to win, it's a lottery in which only a very, very small subset of the possible genings of the physical laws lead to a life-permitting universe. Um, so it's not a uh, a target drawn after the fact. It's an independently knowable target by running the numbers, uh, and it's a it's a small subset of the possible set of of tunings of universal laws. A lottery that someone could conceivably not have won. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Feeding into a but, logic like Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Presum- <laughs> oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So presumably, if you wanted. To, <coughs> And I think this is what Robin is getting at. You could say, you don't need to invoke a multiverse theory to say, you could just accept that it's incredibly likely we're here. I mean, that might cause all sorts of other problems, but you could just accept them the oh, same yeah. way. I mean, you could, yeah. you could broaden it slightly with logic examples. If I bought a lottery ticket, I might not expect to win, but I could accept, you could accept mm. that you might. Yeah. So it's, it's just very, very, very... Yeah. Yeah. In this case, it's just very, 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 very kind of... Like yeah, sure. You you could say that. It's it's just whether you're really prepared to buy buy that bullet, as it were. All, all arguments give you some sort of price tag a, attached to denying the conclusion, and if you're willing to pay the price tag, you can avoid the conclusion. Your, your your only question is: is that a sort of price tag that I'm prepared rationally to pay in order to avoid this conclusion or not? Yeah. Um, absolutely. You could also argue that it's the opposite. If it was designed, it was designed very poorly for humans. We've only got one planet that's even remotely hospitable, and much of that still isn't. So it's actually very, very poorly designed for us. If but, it was. but this kind of dis, so-called yeah, distele- yeah. disteleology argument is is not an argument against design. Uh, it's an argument against the um, perhaps the character, the moral character of the designer, or a, an argument raising question about what are the purposes of the design. Uh, and so on. I mean, it, it's, you know, um, as the example goes, it's obvious looking at a torture rack that it was designed. You can't say just because this does terrible things to people, therefore it's not designed. Or um, it, this is a really inefficient kettle that wastes most of the power that we put, in, put, put into it and puts hardly any of that power into boiling water. Um, but nonetheless, you could still say it's obviously designed. It's just badly designed. Um, so. In the desert to die and say this was designed for you just because he doesn't die within the first three or four hours it clearly wasn't it's very very poorly for him but yes there are conditions there that do allow him to survive for however long and if we're trying to say God's a perfect being then why the imperfect design I think well yes I mean that's that's the question that you're raising you see but that's not an objection to the fine tuning argument that's to raise the the problem of evil um (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which the problem of evil is not an argument for atheism, you see. Um, it's an argument about a particular theological vision of, of God's character. Um, but the fine-tuning argument doesn't try to tell you anything about God's moral character. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Can I also say something else that, well, like a complete U-turn from what we've been discussing. Um, can so I pause you there very briefly? I've just noticed the there? clock. Um, <laughs> if people are happy, we'll let Robin finish and then Peter sort of wrap things up and then time for one more objection or whatever if there is one. 
and then bring it into land quite quickly. I, I have one about the fine mm-hmm. but I, I, I we can talk one on one if you like. Yeah. So we have this principle in physics called the cosmological principle, mm-hmm. and it's based on the on the observation that the universe is roughly isotropic, homogeneous, and invariant on large scales. So this is what we see when we look at the universe on very large scales that it looks about the same in every direction. It looks homogeneous, so there's no, you know, very, very tiny variations in, mm. um, in, in the, um, you know, structure of it. So that's one thing that kind of suggests that it doesn't really look designed. If you look at it from far enough away, it looks like, you know, everything is just kind of set around randomly, roughly homogeneously. Well, I'm not sure how that's an objection to the fine-tuning arg- argument there. Um, oh, and on that principle, just granting the principle, you'd say, wouldn't you, um, well, here is, um, clearly it's a, a life-permitting universe, here is a planet that does have some life on it, there's lots and lots and lots of planets, and lots and lots and lots of galaxies. If there's, uh, you know, uh, one life-bearing planet in this galaxy and there are X number of galaxies, that probably means there's one life-bearing planet in, in so there's, you know, X number of life-bearing planets. Um, but what's the, I mean, is the objection, you know, if, I assume a priori that if God were to have, to have designed the universe, then every planet would have life on it. Or, um, but again, this is to raise a sort of what, what were the designer's purposes in producing this design rather than to say just by looking at it we can tell well obviously the design is not the best explanation for the things that do call for that are you know that that subset of of possible parameters that hit this independent specification of at least permitting the existence of complicated structures and including life (laughs) (laughs) okay Uh, no, no, you can have the floor. We'll no, give you, we'll, we, we, we will give you the opportunity oh. to look at the last couple. So. Okay, because um, I've been thinking about there's um, an objection to the ontological argument. So I forget exactly how it goes, but something along the lines of the like, perfect desert island. Uh, yeah, yeah. If, if, island. Was, if you can imagine a sort of perfect island, mm. island somewhere out in the middle of the ocean, yeah. Surely its perfection includes its necessary existence, and yet it yeah. does not exist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, this is why the, the, the framing the argument in terms of the great making properties yeah. is absolutely crucial. Because, for example, uh, an island is by, by definition something physical, which would mean by definition it's contingent rather than necessary. Um, so actually the concept of a, of, uh, of a necessarily existent island is like the concept of a square circle. It is an incoherent concept um and as other philosophers have said you know what what makes for the greatest possible island you know couldn't we make the island a bit bigger and put a few more palm trees and coconuts on it or dancing girls in hula uh, you know what so what's what great making properties are meant to be being maximally instantiated here um whereas the concept of the greatest possible being who maximally instantiates these great making properties Mm. and therefore would have necessary and therefore non-physical being seems uh-huh. coherent, so, yeah.